Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. We are in a series that is inspired by the book Emotionally Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Pete Scazzaro. And you've heard Greg talk about that for weeks now. Um, so the, the series is about becoming emotionally healthy disciples of Jesus. Um, the book serves as a supplement for, for the series, for the messages. We are following along the chapters, but we're not necessarily preaching exactly what the chapters, um, like word, word by word. So you don't actually have to have the book or read the book to follow along, but I'll say that we're reading it as a shepherd team, and it is an amazing resource, The Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Pete Scazzaro. If you have any desire to pursue spiritual and emotional health, uh, I would definitely recommend it. So that's actually on both Greg and I's recommended resources, and there are some of those in the back at the Welcome Center. Uh, those are just books that we recommend, that we, we trust. So um, you don't have to read the book, but it is a really, 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 really good supplement. Five reallys, just so you guys know. I want to remind you, we do a question and answer at the end. We've tried, we're trying this. Now, you guys got to be patient with me because this is the first time that I was, I'm able to answer questions because I haven't preached yet in this uh, series. So <clears throat> feel free to ask them, but I might take a few extra seconds than Greg would. If you do have questions, go ahead and just write them down. Put them somewhere to where you can remember, and then at the end of service, I will give you a chance to ask them. All right? So we're going to talk about the highest mark of maturity in the life of a Christian this morning. What does it look like to be truly matured in Jesus? What does maturation look like? To be an emotionally healthy disciple means to be on the pursuit of Christian maturity. Those two things go hand in hand. If you're emotionally healthy, then you're walking towards Christian maturity. If you are a mature Christian, then you should be pursuing emotional health. Um, so we want to talk about what is the highest mark for Christians? What are we looking for when, it, when we're talking about being a mature believer? When you look at someone, you say, okay, that person's mature. Before we get into the text, and I think it's in the notes, but if it's not, the text is 1 John 4, 7 through 11. So you can kind of rifle through there and get there. But before we get into the text, I think it would be helpful for us to look at some of the ways that we mark maturity, whether in the church or outside of the church, because I think that sometimes we mark maturity in typical ways that don't always necessarily mean that someone's mature. So what do we typically see as mature? The very first thing that I think of is age. You, if you're old enough, then you're automatically mature. But all of us have experienced someone who was older than us. Maybe they're a few years older, or maybe they're 50 years older. And their maturation level seems to be lower than ours. So age in itself doesn't necessarily mean you're mature. Now, if you are older and walking with the Spirit, then the natural way that it's supposed to work is that you are more mature than someone who's young. But we've experienced people who are older who aren't mature. So age alone isn't maturity. Another one that we look at, I definitely look at this, is intelligence. If someone can 
uh, speak well, they, can, uh, they know about a topic, and they can really explain it very, very well, then I usually think, oh, they're mature, they must have studied, they must have taken a lot of time for that. Um, but I know this from firsthand experience, because it's me, sometimes intelligence is just insecurity. You want to sound really, really smart, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're mature. Sometimes intelligence just comes from a place of, I don't want people to think I'm not smart. And so it's not necessarily maturity, but intelligence can be maturity. And then the last thing, and there's plenty, but the last thing I want to say is that uh, we typically see maturity in people who are in positions of leadership. But again, I would say that a lot of us, just because I've had conversations and I've experienced this, sometimes there are people in very high positions of leadership who aren't mature. And so being a leader doesn't necessarily mean you're mature either. And a lot of times when you're in a position of leadership and you are operating out of immaturity, you do a lot more damage than good. And I've experienced that in so many different ways. And I hope that when I'm older and I, if, if God gives me more positions of leadership, then that, that's not what people say about me. That, okay, he was a leader, but he did damage. And so being a leader in itself doesn't make you mature either. So what I want to talk about is what Jesus would say is the highest mark of maturity. And we talk about this a lot at Southside. Jesus changes everything. He flips everything around. And kingdom maturity, what it means to be mature in the kingdom of God, is measured much differently than what we typically think. What does Jesus think or say about maturity, what we learn is that the highest mark of maturity in the life of a Christian is love. So, we're looking at 1 John 4, 7 through 11. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Um, the book of 1 John was written by John the Disciple, who also wrote the Gospel of John. If you know anything about him, he was the beloved disciple of Jesus. And so when you go to the very beginning of the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are all eyewitness accounts of Jesus. John was a young man when he experienced the life with Jesus. So he wrote the Gospel of John. But 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those three books were written when he was an, an older man. I like to call him Grandpa John, Wise John. He was much older. He experienced a lot. Um, and so if you don't know where 1st John is, it's, it's kind of easy to get there. It's one of the more easy books. It's the fifth book from the back. So you just go to the end of your Bible and then flip to the left for a little bit. My Bible is that much. And then you get to 1 John. So um, th- we're dealing with someone who has lived through a lot, has seen Jesus, and is now in his older age and is probably coming close to the end of his life. Um, and so he writes about what it means to be mature. Most of 1 John deals with the maturation process of Christians. And so he does a great job of showing us what we should be marking as mature in our church. And so that's love. The highest mark of maturity for a believer is love. We're going to walk through the text, just four verses. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. And I would encourage you, if you do have your Bible with you, um, to open it, kind of go through it with us. Um, If you have place in the margin, take a pen, write down notes, or if you want to write them in your notes too, that's totally fine. 
Um, there's something really sweet about having your own text that you can go back to. Um, maybe you come back to 1 John 4 in 10 years and you're reminded, oh yeah, that was really meaningful. So I would encourage you to use your Bible this morning, but if you don't have one, that's totally okay. Um, you can just sit and listen or, or use a device. 1 John 4, 7 through 11, let's read it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The first thing I want to mention is that love, the virtue of love, and in the Bible it's a fruit. So the spiritual fruit of love is actually one of the highest markers that you know God. Love marks a knowledge of God. It completes the picture of a life in fellowship with God. Now, it's important to mention that love is not the requirement to be renewed by God, but love is the result of being renewed by God. It's not something that you add to your life and therefore become a Christian, but love is something that is supposed to increase in you as you walk the Christian life. Love doesn't save you. This is so important. The virtue of love does not have the power to save. The virtue of love does not have the power to save. Only Jesus has the power to save. Therefore, this is something that is talked about a lot, but Christianity is not the same as every other world religion. Because love alone doesn't save you. It's not just about love. The Christian walk is about the love of God and the love of others. And so it's not just some abstract love that is produced in your life. If you're a believer and Jesus has renewed you, it's about the love for God and the love for others. That's why John writes, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Not because the virtue of love saves you, but because if you are controlled by love, if you're controlled by love, then that's a high-level mark that you have been walking with the Lord. The evidential Jesus love in your life expressed in this verse is a love that you don't naturally have. It's something that you, that you need given to you from an outside source. And so that's one of the big distinctions between Christians and the rest of the world is that we admit, we admit that we aren't able to love like God without God. I'm not able to love how God wants me to love without God loving me. I have just a thought on why this is true. It's extremely, extremely difficult, extremely difficult for a young person to grow into a loving adult if they're not brought up in a loving environment. It's extremely difficult for a young person to, not, to, to grow into a loving adult if they're not brought up in a loving environment. And I believe it's because love is a learned, a learned emotion, a learned response, a learned behavior. 
Love is something to be acquired. And I am positive that there are people in our church right now sitting in the crowd who uh, did not grow up in a loving environment, but are loving, okay? And what I would say is, if you looked at your life, that's be- the reason that you love now is because somewhere down the road, you were shown a type of love that you hadn't experienced before. It's the outside love given to you that allows you to love. Ultimately, the love that you express is usually linked to the love that you've received. And how you love is often linked to how you've been loved. And so John's saying that if you have love, Christian love, then it's only because you have first received love by God. Verse 7 says, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So how does this relate to Christian maturity? Well, I mentioned before that John wrote the Gospel of John and also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He records that Jesus establishes a new commandment, a new standard of maturity in John chapter 13, 34 through 35. So you can write that down and look at it later, but I'm going to read it. This is how it relates to maturity. Jesus says this in verse 34 of John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so the fruit of love is both a grace that's given to you that you don't have in yourself, and it's also a standard or a mark of maturity. It's grace because you cannot produce God-type love in yourself, but it's also a standard because if you're a believer, if you're a believer, then you know that this is the highest aim of maturity in your life. It's a standard because you can flow everything in your life through it. Was I loving? Simple. High love maturity in whatever situation. Did I show love? That could be the first question you ask for the rest of your life, and you're going to do well. Everything that you do is meant to be flowed through the lens of love. And so it's a standard that you're expected to uphold. The very beginning of verse 7, John says, beloved. And so he's speaking to Christians in a very gentle and tender way, but he's also giving them a new standard of maturity. He's expecting them to pursue this in righteousness. And so John makes it clear in both his gospel and his letter that if you love one another, you will show yourself to be one who loves God. And the world, who, the world will know that you're a disciple by your love. Not by your knowledge, not by your ability to articulate, not by your money, not by your age, not by your leadership status. The world will know that you're a disciple by your love. That's why I say that love is the highest mark of maturity, the highest mark of knowing God. It's because if you know God, if you actually know God, then you will be marked by love. They are inseparable from each other. On the contrary, in verse 8, it says, if you do not have love, then you do not know God because God is love. 
Now, I want to point this out, that when you read that, that's kind of scary, right? If you don't love, you don't know God. I just said that love doesn't save you, so can the reverse be true, that not having love keeps you from being saved? I don't think so. I think what he means is that if you don't have love, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian, but it does mean that if love is not your general disposition about life and others, then you are obviously not displaying or reflecting the relationship that you claim to have. And that's why love should be the highest aim of maturity for Christians because the Bible says that if you are not loving, you are showing others that you obviously don't know God. Another way to say it is that if you don't have love, then it is evidence that you're not experiencing God in a real way. And so that's a really good litmus test for you. Am I loving? Okay, no. You can be honest with yourself. What do I need to change to experience God in a real way? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter, if I speak in the language of angels, but I do not have love, then I'm a clanging symbol. And a few verses later, he says, if I have faith to move mountains, I have the best faith in the world, but I don't have love, then I am nothing. Love is a great grace and also a great standard. It's grace because it's given to you by Jesus at the moment of conversion. And it's a standard because your life in all areas is meant to be controlled by love. Here's what he's saying in verse 8. Anyone who's not controlled by love is showing that their life has not been gripped by Jesus. Because to be gripped by Jesus is to be gripped by his love. Because God is love. He's completely and utterly ruled by it. Love and God are inseparable. Every decision ever made since before time, because God is outside of time, has been flowed through and ruled by love. Which is amazing. So as believers, pursuing Christ-likeness, the ultimate mark of maturity, it's someone who's constantly and consistently pursuing a life of love in all ways. Let's move on. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So how does God love us? His love is expressed in a person, and that person is Jesus. So this is a really cool twofold effect here. If you want to know how God loved you, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to love like God, look at Jesus. So if you're wondering, how, can, how does God love me? How can I experience that? Look to Jesus. And if you're wondering, how am I supposed to love like God? Look to Jesus. God's love being made manifest gives us two amazing expressions. We learn everything that we need to know about the love of God. And we learn everything we need to know about the way that we're supposed to love one another. And so let's talk about those for just a minute here. What type of love does God have for you and me? Verse 9 says it beautifully. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live 
through him. Jesus was sent, made manifest in the love of God, so that you might have life. The best expression of God's love to you is the promise that a life that abides in him is a life that's to be fully alive. Not just alive to God, that's true, but alive in every single way. Christ is meant to illuminate the rest of your life. When you are a mature believer in God's love, the rest of your life is meant to be better. That's what it means. Jesus illuminates you by his love to make every place that you go better because you're there. Not necessarily in a material way as we might typically think about it, but your life is meant to get better because the rest of your life is infused with life. So that we might live through him. Not that just we, we would be able to walk and talk and breathe, but that we are emotionally <clears throat> and inside we are full of life. God's love was made manifest so that anywhere that you go, you can be marked by that, fully alive. At work, no matter what the job is, you can be alive. For me, coaching, no matter what it is, I can be alive. In your everyday, mundane task that you hate doing, but you have to do it every single day, you can have a mental shift to be alive. Why? Because you're experiencing the love of God. It was made manifest in Jesus, expressed to you. And so everything in your life is meant to change. Here's my non-exhaustive summary of the love of God. The love of God compelled him to send Jesus to give you life, eternally with him forever, in life right now. So that's the type of love that God has for you, is that he sent Jesus so that you can have eternal life, and that for the rest of your earthly life, everything is illuminated in him. Talk about an amazing way to live, right? Okay, so what kind of love are we to give to others? Now, we look to Jesus for that. He's the best model and the best motivator for us. The life given to us by Jesus is the love and life that we're to give to others. And so let's just do a little case study. We could talk about the way that Jesus loved others. That could be the sermon series until Southside dissipates into exi- like out of existence and Jesus returns. But for sake of time, I'm just going to talk about three practical ways that I think we deal with probably every single day in ways that Jesus expresses love to others. And these are ways that our lives can change so that we can express love on the pursuit of maturity in Christ. So the first one is, Jesus was present and unrushed and clear in all of his conversations. In John chapter 3, again, back to John, he talks to a Pharisee named Nicodemus about being born again. And and Nicodemus was a, a knowledgeable man on God. He was a Pharisee. And he was a religious leader, and so he probably knew everything in the Old Testament, probably memorized most of it. And he knew that God had saved him through old ways and 
this Jesus guy comes along talking about salvation for the world and what does that mean? And, and so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, it says in John chapter 3. Comes to him with questions. And what's amazing is if you come to a person at night, it means that you're kind of in it for a long haul. You're expecting for someone to be there with you. And Nicodemus asks Jesus about salvation. And Jesus didn't get frustrated with him. He didn't get frustrated with his curiosity. Instead, he was present to him, unrushed in his response. He said, well, you're supposed to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, do I have to crawl in my mom's womb again? That's a real question he asked. And Jesus was like, no, you have to be born again through the Spirit. It's an amazing story of how Jesus was completely present, completely unrushed and clear because he told Nicodemus exactly what he needed to hear. And so, how are we to love like Jesus? When we are in conversations, you should be present and unrushed and clear. And that takes a lot of work, but that's one way that we can love just like Jesus did. The second way that we see that Jesus loves is that he was compassionate. Now, this example alone would be our second dissipation into existence to talk about because Jesus' compassion is all over the Gospels. I don't want to take one specific example. I just want to give you a few to write down if you'd like because these would be an amazing case study for yourself just looking at the compassion of Jesus. So here are a few that you can write down if you want. Um, and if you don't get them all, you can ask uh, after the message. John chapter 4 is the woman at the well. Jesus meets a woman at the well and has compassion. Luke 19 is the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, where Jesus goes to a man who is completely ridiculed by his own people and gives him dignity. Matthew 9, 20 through 22, Jesus is in a crowd and he heals a hemorrhaging woman, not being rushed by her issues. John chapter 8, 1 through 11, Jesus talks to the woman caught in adultery and has compassion and says those who have not sinned can cast the first stone. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man, giving him sight in all the ways. It's important to note that in all these examples, and in all of the examples of Jesus' compassion, his first response to people is always compassion. Always compassion. His very first reaction, no matter who you are, is always compassion. Luke 7.13, just a very sweet verse, says, When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Now, this is the heart of the Lord towards others. And it should be our heart towards others as well. It's that if love marks maturity, then compassion as a first response is healthy, disciple, healthy discipleship level 1,000. If love marks maturity, then compassion being your first response could be tier one thing that you, you should be thinking about. Human tendency is to look to a person who's struggling and find a reason why they would do that and look down on them. Not Jesus. He's ruled by His love, which always leads Him to compassion. One practical way that we can be led by compassion is just make this mental note 
that you are going to assume the best of other people. When you assume the best, it is extremely easy to have compassion. When you assume the worst, it's extremely easy to spiral. Right? When you assume the worst about someone and they do something 1% off of what you expected them to do, that quick, we spiral. When you assume the best about someone and they do something off, you're able to go, okay, maybe I didn't hear that the right way. So a very practical way to have compassion on others is just to assume the best about them. The last thing that we see about the way that Jesus loved is that he was gentle and lowly in heart. And that's what the Bible says about him. Come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus was never harsh with anyone except religious leaders and legalists. He was not harsh with those who opposed him politically. Ever. He was not harsh with sinners. Ever. He was not harsh with his disciples. Even Judas, who Jesus knew and said would betray him. He still let him come to the feast and eat. This one's extremely important. He was never harsh to a woman, ever. Ever. Jesus' disposition towards people was gentle. Gentle and lowly in heart. Being harsh is not from God. And I don't know where that came into the church. But it's, it's minorly or majorly ridiculous that being harsh is from God. It's not from God. I don't know why that's ever been acceptable. But it's not like Jesus. And I know that I need help. And I think of the, the parable of the, the tax collector and the... Uh, I think the Samaritan who just looks to God and beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me. Anytime I think about being harsh, I, that's where I go because I need mercy for myself. Isaiah 42.3 describes Jesus' gentleness in this way. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus does not crush those who are faltering. He spurs them on in love. And that is the standard for our life. That when we see someone who's faltering in any way, we are compelled by love to spur them to life. And ultimately, love led Jesus to the cross to die to himself in every possible way. He laid down his own preferences for others. He even says to the Father in the garden, if you can take the cup from me, if there's any other way, please take it. I don't want to go to the cross. And then he says, but not my will, Father, but yours be done. And so love led him to laying down all of his preferences for the sake of others. And I want to finish with this. Verse 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is amazing. 
to love like God, to be moving towards maturity, you must first receive love from God. In this is love, not that we have loved, but that He has loved us. And so the only possible way for you to pursue maturity is to bask in the love of God yourself. It's to remember and to tap into the reservoir of love that has been given to you in Jesus. If you're a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit, which is amazing. And He's always ready and willing to help in times of need. And so if you need help loving, here's an amazing suggestion. I do this all the time because my disposition, my first response without God is not love. It's not. So here's a suggestion. Ask Him to help you. Pray and ask God to help you love. If your reaction is not normally love, pray and ask God to help you be more loving in your reactions. This is a legitimate daily prayer of mine. I will say, Lord, I am going to react today not out of love without you. I need your help. Help me to react in love. If you have difficulty loving someone, maybe your enemy or whatever, pray and ask God to help you love them. When you start to pray for another person, it's really, really hard to hate them. It becomes much easier to love them. And so ask God to help. And verse 11 is the motivation. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. The key to loving others is to realize that you yourself are loved by God through Jesus. So if you are loved, you ought to love others. When we're not controlled and reactive in love, it's a really good sign that our hearts are not currently being gripped by Jesus. Love is a great standard and a great grace. And so because it's the highest aim of maturity, you're able to look at your own life and say, am I loving like Jesus? What needs to change? Most likely, now I I didn't think this before, but I, I believe this to be true. Most likely what needs to change is to commit to some unrushed time in the presence of your king. Jesus, who's the ultimate source and giver of love to you. And so, for maturity's sake, look to Jesus. Look to the love that He has, who models. He models and He motivates everything that you're called to. And so, as you spend more time in the presence of your King, you are made a more loving person. That's why the highest mark of maturity for a believer is love. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.